Chapter Nineteen of the Curse of Khan's Hold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Curse of Khan's Hold by George Alfred Henty. Chapter Nineteen. The Fire at Khan's Hold. Things went on quietly with Mr. Armstrong and his daughter after the letter had dispatched her letter saying that Ruth Powlett was ready to confess the truth respecting George Forrester. The excitement of following up the clue was over, and there was nothing to do until they heard from Ronald as to how he wished them to proceed. So one morning Mr. Armstrong came down and told Mary to pack up at once and start with him at twelve o'clock for London. "'We're getting like two owls and must wake ourselves up a bit,' Mary ran down to the mill to say good-bye to Ruth, and tell her that she and her father had to go to London for a short time. They were ready by the time named, for there was little packing to do, and at twelve o'clock the trap from the Carn's arms came up to the door and took them to the station. A month was spent in London, sightseeing. By the end of that time both had had enough of theatres and exhibitions and returned to Carnsford. "'Well, what is the news, neighbours? Mr. Armstrong asked, as he entered the snuggery on the evening of his return. "'There's not much news here,' Jacob Carey said. "'There never is much news to speak of in Carnsford. But they say things are not going on well up at the hold.' "'In what way, Mr. Carey?' "'Well, for some time there's been a talk that the squire was getting strange in his ways. He was never bright and cheerful like Miss Margaret, but always seemed to be a-thinking, and as often as not when he rode through here—' would take no more notice of you when he passed than if you hadn't been there. He was always wonderful fond of books, they say, and when a man takes to books I don't think he's much good for anything else. But ever since Miss Margaret's death he's been queerer than before, and they said he had a way of walking about the house all hours of the night. So it went on until just lately. Now it seems he's worse than ever. They can hear him talking to himself, and laughing in a way as would make you creep." folks say as the curse of the Carnes has fallen on him bad and that he is as mad as his grandfather was the women have all left except the old cook who has got a girl to stay with her they lock the door at night and they've got the men from the stable to sleep in the house unknown to the master one day last week when mr Carne was out for the day old hester came down and saw the parson and he sent for dr arrowsmith and had a quiet talk over it you see, it is a mighty awkward thing to meddle with. Mr. Carne has got no relations, so far as is known, except Mrs. Mervyn's daughters, who are away living, I hear, at Hastings, and Captain Mervyn, who is God knows where. Of course, he is the heir, if the squire doesn't marry and have children, and if he were here, it would be his business to interfere and have the squire looked after or shut up, if needs be. But there don't seem anyone to take the matter up now." The doctor told Hester that he could do nothing without being called in and seeing for himself that Mr. Carne was out of his mind. The parson said the only thing she could do was to go to Mr. Vokes, the magistrate, and tell him she thought there was danger of murder if something wasn't done. Hester has got plenty of courage and said she didn't think there was any danger to her, cause the squire had known her from the time he had known anything. "'I don't know,' Mr. Armstrong said. Mad people are often more dangerous to those they care for than to strangers. 
Really, this is very serious, for from what you have told me, the madness of the Carnes is always of a dangerous kind. One thing is quite evident. Captain Mervyn ought to come back at once. There have been tragedies enough at Carnes Hold without another. Aye, and there will be, put in Reuben Claphurst, as long as Carnes Hold stands. The curse of the Spanish woman rests upon it. "'What you say is right enough, Mr. Armstrong,' Hiram Powlett agreed. "'No doubt the Miss Mervins know where their brother is, and could let him know. But would he come back again? I've always said as how we should never see Captain Mervyn back again in these parts until the matter of Miss Khan's death was cleared up.' Mr. Armstrong sat looking at the fire. "'He must be got back,' he said. "'If what you say is true, and Mr. Carne's going off his head—' He must be got back. Hiram Powlett shook his head. He must come back, Mr. Armstrong repeated. It's his duty, pleasant or unpleasant. It may be that he is on his way home now, but if not, it would hasten him. You look surprised, and no wonder. But I may now tell you what I haven't thought it necessary to mention to you before. Mind, you must promise to keep it to yourselves, I met Captain Mervyn out at the Cape, and made his acquaintance there. He was passing under another name, but we got to be friends, and he told me his story. I've written to him once or twice since, and I will write to him now, and tell him that if he hasn't already started for home, it's his duty to do so. I suppose it was partly his talking to me about this place that made me come here to see it at first, and then I took to it. The surprise of the others at finding that Mr. Armstrong knew Ronald was very great. "'I wonder you didn't mention it before,' Jacob Carey said, giving voice to the common feeling. "'We've talked about him so often, and you never said a word to let us know you had met him.' "'No, I never should have said a word but for this. You'll understand that Captain Mervyn wouldn't want where he was living made a matter of talk, and though when he told me the story he did not know I was coming to Carnesford, and so didn't ask me not to mention it. I consider I was bound to him to say nothing about it. But now that I know he is urgently required here, I don't see there's occasion any longer to make a secret of the fact that he's out in South Africa. "'Yes, I understand, Mr. Armstrong,' Hiram Powlett agreed. Naturally, when he told you about himself, he did not ask it to be kept a secret, because he did not know you would meet anyone that knowed him. But when he did meet such— you thought that it was right to say nothing about it, and I agree with you. But of course this matter of the squire going queer in his mind makes all the difference, and I think, as you says, Captain Mervyn ought to be fetched home. When he has seen the squire is properly taken care of, he can go away where he likes. That is so, Jacob Carey agreed. Mervyn ought to know what is doing here, and if you can write and tell him that he's wanted, you'll be doing a good turn for the squire as well as for him. "'And how was the captain looking, Mr. Armstrong?' "'He was looking very well when I first knew him,' Mr. Armstrong replied. "'But when I saw him last, he had got hurt in a brush with the natives. "'But it was nothing serious, and he was getting over it.' "'The same set as attacked your farm, Mr. Armstrong, as you was telling us about?' "'I don't suppose it was the same party, because there were thousands of them scattered all over the colony, burning and plundering. "'Captain Mervyn had a narrow escape from them.' was lucky in getting out of it as well as he did. "'They said he was a good fighter,' Jacob Carey put in. 
The paper said as he had done some hard fighting with the Afghans, and got praised by his general. "'Yes, he's a fine fellow,' Mr. Armstrong said. "'And, I should say, as brave as a lion.' "'No signs of the curse working in him?' Hiram Powlett asked, touching his forehead. "'They made a lot of it at the trial about his being related to the Khans, and about his being low in spirits sometimes. But I have seen him scores of times ride through the village when he was a young chap, and he always looked merry and good-tempered.' "'No,' Mr. Armstrong said, emphatically. "'Ronald Mervyn's brain is as healthy and clear as that of any man in England.' I'm quite sure there's not the slightest touch of the family malady in him. Maybe not. Maybe not, Reuben Claphurst said. The curse is on the hold, and he has nothing to do with the hold yet. If anything happens to the squire, and he comes to be its master, you'll see it begin to work, if not in him, in his children. God forbid, Mr. Armstrong said, so earnestly that his hearers were almost startled. I don't much believe in curses, Mr. Claphurst, though, of course, I believe in insanity being in some instances hereditary. But, at the same time, if I were Ronald Mervyn and I inherited Khan's hold, I would pull the place down stone by stone, and not leave a vestige of it standing. Why, to live in a house like that, in which so many tragedies have taken place, is enough in itself to turn a sane man into madness.' "'That's just how I should feel,' Hiram Powlett said. "'Now, a stranger who looked at the hold would say what a pleasant, open-looking house it was. But when you took him inside and told him what had happened there, it would be enough to give him the creeps. I believe it was being up there that was the beginning of my daughter's changing so. I never made a worse job of a thing than I did when I got her up there as Miss Carne's maid. And yet it was all for her good.' "'And now, neighbours, it's my time to be off. It's a quarter to nine, and that is five minutes later than usual.' Mr. Armstrong and Mary sat talking until nearly eleven about what he had heard about Mr. Khan. She had not been gone upstairs a minute when she ran down again from her bedroom, which was at the back of the house. "'Father, there's a light in the sky up at the top of the hill, just where Carne's hold lies. I went to the window to draw down the blinds, and it caught my eye at once.' Mr. Armstrong ran out into the road. As Mary had said, there was a glare of light over the trees on the hill, rising and falling. "'Sure enough, it's a fire at the hold,' he said, as he ran in and caught up his hat. Then he hurried down the village, knocking at each door and shouting, "'There's a fire at the hold!' Just as he reached the other end, a man on horseback dashed down the hill, shouting, "'Fire!' It was one of the grooms at the hold. "'Is it at the house?' Mr. Armstrong asked, as he drew up for a moment at the inn. "'Yes, it's bursting out from the lower windows. It has got a big hold. I'm going to the station to telegraph to Plymouth and Exeter for engines.' "'How about those in the house?' Mr. Armstrong asked. "'Some of them got out by the back way, and we got some of them out by ladders. The others are seeing to that. They sent me off at once.' A minute or two later, men came clattering down the quiet street at a run, and some of them overtook Mr. Armstrong as he hurried up the hill. "'Is that you, Mr. Armstrong?' a voice asked behind him. "'Yes, it's me, Carrie.' "'I thought it was,' the smith said. "'I caught sight of your figure against the light up there in front. I couldn't help thinking, when you shouted at my door that there was a fire at the hold, 
what we were talking about this evening, and you were saying that if the place was yours, you'd pull it down stone by stone. But perhaps we may save it yet. We shall have a couple of score of men there in a few minutes. I fancy there's not much chance of that, Carrie. I spoke to the groom as he rode through, and he tells me that the fire, when he came away, was bursting from several of the lower windows, so it has got a good hold, and they're not likely to have much water handy. No, that's true enough. There's a big well a hundred feet deep in the stable-yard, and a force pump, which takes two men to work. It supplied the house as well as the stables. That's the only water there will be, and that won't be much good, he added, as, on emerging from the wood, they suddenly caught sight of the house. From the whole of the lower windows in front the flames were bursting out. "'It's travelled fast,' the smith said. "'The dining-room and drawing-room and library are all on fire.' "'Yes, that's curious, too,' Mr. Armstrong remarked. "'One would have thought it would have mounted up to the next floor long before it travelled so far along on a level. "'Ah, it's going up to the floor above now.' As he spoke, a spout of light flame suddenly appeared through the window over the front door. "'That's the staircase window, I suppose.' Two or three minutes running took them up onto the lawn. "'I'll go and lend a hand at those pumps,' Jacob Carey said. "'It's not the slightest use,' Mr. Armstrong replied. "'You might as well try to blow out that fire with your breath as to put it out by throwing a few pails of water on it. Let us see that everyone is out first. That's the main matter.' They joined a group of men and women, who were standing looking at the flames. They were the two women, the groom and gardener, and four or five men who had already come up from the village. The gardener was speaking. "'It's no use to work at the pumps. There are only four or five pails. It was only at one end we might prevent it spreading, but it's got hold all over.' "'I can't make it out,' the groom said. "'One of the horses was sick, and I was down there giving him hot fermentations with my mate.' I've been there perhaps an hour, when I saw a light coming out of the drawing-room window, and I ran up shouting, and then I saw there was a light in the dining-room and library, too. Then I ran round to the back of the house, and the housekeeper's room there was a light, too. I ran in at the kitchen door and upstairs, and woke the gardeners and got them out. The place was so full of smoke, it was as much as we could do to get downstairs. Then we got a long ladder and put it against Mrs. Wilson's window, and got her and the girl down. Then we came round this side, and I got up and broke a pane in Mr. Carne's window, and shouted. I could not make him hear, so I broke another pane, and unfastened the window and lifted it, and went in. I thought he must have been stifled in bed, for the smoke was as thick as possible, and I had to crawl to the bed. Well, master wasn't there. I felt about to see if he was on the floor, but I could find nothing of him. The door was open, and I expect he must have been woke up by the smoke and went out to see what was the matter, and perhaps got choked by it. I know I was nearly choked myself by the time I got my head out of the window again. "'He may have got to the upper story,' Jacob Carey said. "'We'd best keep a lookout round the house, so as to be ready to put the ladder up at once if we see him. There's nothing else to do, is there, Mr. Armstrong? You are accustomed to all sorts of troubles, and may know best what we ought to do.' "'I can't think of anything,' Mr. Armstrong replied. No, if he's not in his own room, it seems hopeless to search for him. You see, the flames have broken out from several windows of the first floor. My own idea is, from what you say as to the fire having spread into all the rooms on the ground floor when you discovered it, that the poor gentleman must have set fire to the house himself in half a dozen places, 
as likely as not, may have been suffocated almost at once.' "'I shouldn't wonder if that was it,' the smith said. "'It's not natural that the fire should have spread all over the lower part of the house in such a short time. "'You know what we're saying this evening. "'It's just a sort of trick for a madman to play.' The smith was interrupted by a sudden exclamation from those standing round, followed by a shout of, "'There he is!' A dormer window on the roof of the oldest part of the house opened, and a figure stepped out onto a low parapet that ran round the house. "'All right, sir! All right!' Jacob Carey shouted out at the top of his voice. "'We will have a ladder for you in no time!' and he and a score of men ran to fetch the long ladder that was leaning against the side of the house. It was soon lowered, brought round, and placed against the parapet close to where Reginald Carne was standing. "'Now then, sir,' Jacob Carey shouted again, "'it's all right. You can come down safe enough.' But Mr. Carne paid no attention to the shout. He was pacing up and down along the parapet, and was tossing his arms about in a strange manner. Suddenly he turned, seized the ladder, and pushed it violently sideways along the parapet. Those below vainly tried to keep it steady. "'Look out!' the smiths shouted. "'Leave go and clear out, or you'll have it down on you.' The men holding the ladder dashed away from the foot, and the ladder fell with a crash upon the ground, while a peal of wild laughter broke out from above. "'The squire has gone clean mad,' Jacob Carey said to Mr. Armstrong, as he joined him. Either the fire has driven him mad, or, what is more likely, he went mad first and then lit the fire. However, we must save him if we can. Look there, Carrie. If we lift the ladder and put it up between that chimney and the window next to it, he can't slide it either one way or another, as he did before, and he certainly could not throw it backwards if we plant the foot well away from the house. That's right enough, the smith agreed, but if he won't come down, he won't. We must go up and make him, Carry. If you and I and a couple of strong men go up together, we ought to be able to master him. Of course, we must take up rope with us, and bind him, and then lower him down the ladder. We might do that, the smith said. But supposing the ladder catches fire? The fire won't touch it at that point, Carry. You see, it will go up just between the rows of windows. So it will. Anyhow, we might take up a long rope, if they have got one, so as to lower ourselves down if the ladder does catch fire. He spoke to one of the grooms. Have you got plenty of rope? Plenty, the man said. I'll fetch you a couple of long coils from the stables. Here, one of you, come along with me. Now we will get the ladder up, Mr. Armstrong said. With the aid of a dozen men, for the whole village was now upon the spot, the ladder was again lifted and dropped so that the upper end fell between a chimney and a dormer window. Reginald Carne again attempted to cast it down, but a number of men hung on to the lower part of the ladder, and he was unable to lift it far enough to get it out of the niche into which it had fallen. Then he turned round and shook his fist at the crowd. Something flashed in the light of the flames, and half a dozen voices exclaimed, "'He's got a knife!' At this moment the clergyman and doctor arrived together on the scene. "'What is to be done, doctor?' Jacob Carey asked. "'I don't mind going up, with some others to back me, to have a tussle with him on the roof, but he would knife us one by one as we got up to the parapet, and though I don't think as I am a coward, I don't care about chucking away my life, which is of use to my wife and children, 
save that of a madman whose life ain't of no use to himself or anyone else no i don't see why you should carry the doctor said the best plan will be to keep away from the ladder for the present perhaps when he thinks you are not going to make the attempt he will move away and then we can get up there before he sees us i will go first because he knows me and my influence may quiet him but we'd better arm ourselves with sticks so as to knock that knife out of his hand reginald carne stood guarding the ladder for a few minutes by this time the whole of the first floor was in a blaze the flames rushing out with fury from every window seeing that he did not move the doctor said at last well we must risk it give me a stick carry who will make a try anyhow you can't go now mr armstrong said suddenly look the ladder is alight this was indeed the case the flames had not absolutely touched it but the heat was so great that it had been slowly charring and a light flame had now suddenly appeared and in a moment ten or twelve feet of the ladder were on fire it's of no use the doctor said dropping the stick that jacob carey had just cut for him in the shrubbery we can do nothing for him now there was scarcely a word spoken among the little crowd of spectators on the lawn every moment was adding to their number as mr vokes the magistrate and several other gentlemen rode up on horseback and men came up from all the farmhouses and cottages within a circle of a couple of miles all sorts of suggestions were made but only to be rejected it's one thing to save a man who wants to be saved the doctor said but quite another thing to save one who is determined not to be saved this was an answer to a proposal to fasten a stone onto a light line and throw it up onto the roof the man is evidently as mad as a march hare there could be no doubt of that reginald carne seeing that his assailants as he considered them could not get at him was making gestures of triumph and derision at them now from the second floor windows the flames began to spurt out the glass clattering down onto the gravel below oh father what a pitiful sight mr armstrong turned what on earth brings you here mary run away child this is a dreadful business and it will be haunting you i've seen more shocking things father she said quietly why did you not bring me up with you at first i ran upstairs to get my head and shawl and when i came back you were gone of course i came up at once just as everyone else in the village has done only i would not come and bother you when i thought you were going to do something there's nothing to be done now but wait this must surely be the end of the curse of Carne's hold father it ought to be my dear yes let us earnestly hope that it all terminates here for your sake and everyone else's mervyn will be master of Carne's hold now not of Carne's hold thank god the girl said with a shudder there will be nothing left of Carne's hold to-morrow but a heap of ruins the place will be destroyed before he becomes its master it all ends together the hold and the direct line of the Carnes. let us turn and walk away mary this is too dreadful i can't and mary shook her head i wish i could father but it has a sort of horrible fascination look at all these upturned faces it is the same with them all you can see that there is not one who would not go if he could the doctor again went forward towards the house carne my dear fellow 
he shouted. "'Jump off at the end of the house into the shrubs on the beds there. It's your only chance!' Again the mocking laugh was heard above the roar of the fire. The flames were breaking out through the roof now in several places. "'It will not be long before the roof falls through,' Mr. Armstrong said. "'Come away, Mary. I will not let you stay here any longer.' Putting his arms round his daughter, he led her away. She had not gone ten steps when there was a tremendous crash. She looked back. The roof was gone, and a volcano of flame and sparks was rising from the shell of the house. Against these, the figure of the madman stood out black and clear. Then a sudden puff of wind whirled the flames round him. He staggered, made a half-step backwards, and fell while a cry went up from the crowd. "'It's all over, dear,' Mr. Armstrong said, releasing his hold of his daughter, and then, with Jacob Carey and three or four other men, he ran forward to the house, lifted the body of Reginald Carne, and carried it beyond danger of a falling wall. Dr. Arrowsmith, the clergyman, and several of the neighbours at once hurried to the spot. "'He's not dead,' Jacob Carey said as they came up. He groaned when we lifted him. He fell onto one of the little flower-beds beneath the windows. "'No, his heart is beating,' the doctor said, as he knelt beside him and felt his pulse. "'But I fear he must have sustained fatal injuries.' He took out a flask that he had, thinking that a cordial might be required, slipped into his pocket just before starting for the scene of the fire, and poured a few drops of spirit between Reginald Carne's lips. There was a faint groan, and a minute later he opened his eyes. He looked round in a bewildered way, but when his eyes fell on the burning house, a look of satisfaction passed over his face. "'I've done it,' he said. "'I've broken the curse of Carne's hold.' The doctor stood up for a moment, and said to one of the grooms, standing close by, "'Get a stable-door off its hinges, and bring it here.' We'll carry him into the gardener's cottage. As soon as Reginald Carne was taken away, Mr. Armstrong and his daughter returned to the village. A few of the villagers followed their example, but for most of them the fascination of watching the flames that were leaping far above the shell of the house was too great to be resisted, and it was not until the day dawned and the flames smouldered to a deep, quiet glow that the crowd began to disperse. It has been a terrible scene, Mary said as she walked with her father down the hill. "'A terrible scene, child, and it would have been just as well if you had stayed at home and slept comfortably. If I had thought that you were going to be so foolish, I would not have gone myself.' "'You know very well, father, you could not have helped yourself. You could not have sat quietly in our cottage, with the flames dancing up above the treetops there, if you had tried ever so much. Well, Somehow I am glad that the hold is destroyed. But, of course, I am sorry for Mr. Carne's death, for I suppose he will die. I don't think you need be sorry, Mary. Far better to die even like that than to live till old age within the walls of a madhouse. Yes, but it was not the death. It was the horror of it. There was no horror in his case, my dear. He felt nothing but a wild joy in the mischief he had done. I do not suppose that he had a shadow of fear of death. He exulted both in the destruction of his house and in our inability to get at him. I really do not think he is to be pitied. 
although it was a terrible sight to see him. No doubt he was carrying out a long-cherished idea. A thing of this sort does not develop all at once. He may for years have been brooding over this unhappy taint of insanity in his blood, and have persuaded himself that, with the destruction of the house, what the people here foolishly call the curse of the Khans would be at an end. "'But surely you don't believe anything about the curse, father?' "'Not much, Mary. The curse was not upon the house, but in the insanity that the Spanish ancestors of the Carnes introduced into the family. Still, I don't know, although you may think me weak-minded, that I can assert conscientiously that I do not believe there is anything in the curse itself. One has heard of such things, and certainly the history of the Carnes would almost seem to justify the belief.' Ronald and his two sisters are, it seems, the last of those who have the current blood in their veins, and his misfortunes and their unhappiness do not seem to have anything whatever to do with the question of insanity. At any rate, dear, I, like you, am glad that the whole is destroyed. I must own, I should not have liked the thought of your ever becoming its mistress, and indeed I have more than once thought that before I handed you over to Ronald, whenever that event might take place, I should insist on his making me a promise that should he survive his cousin and come into the Carnes' estates, he would never take you to live there. Well, this will be a new incident for you to write to him about. You ought to feel thankful for that, for you would otherwise have found it very difficult to fill your letters till you hear from him what course he is going to adopt regarding this business of Ruth Powlett and Forrester. Mary smiled quietly to herself under cover of the darkness, for indeed she found by no means the difficulty her father supposed in filling her letters. "'It's nearly four o'clock,' she said, as she entered the house and struck a light. "'It's hardly worth while going to bed, father.' "'All right, my dear, you can please yourself. Now it is all over, I acknowledge I feel both cold and sleepy, and you will see nothing more of me—' until between ten and eleven o'clock in the morning. "'Oh, if you go to bed, of course I shall not stop up by myself,' Mary said. "'But I am convinced that I shall not close an eye.' "'And I am equally convinced, Mary, that in a little over half an hour you will be sound asleep.' And in the morning Mary acknowledged that his anticipation had been verified. End of chapter 19